Okay. Um, hi. My name is uh, Aaron Gullius, as, uh, as Noah said. And I want to thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for, uh, for being here for one of the talks that's not specifically about Shag Harbor. So, um, so I, uh, I really appreciate that. And thanks to the organizers of the event for uh, inviting me to speak about the broader world of UFO crashes, of which the Shag Harbor is such a real example. Like most of the things being discussed here this weekend, um, we could spend an entire conference on just the history of UFO crashes, or the history of Shag Harbor, or the strange mysteries of the Shelburne base that we are still attempting to unravel, because, you know, mysterious Cold War military bases with cover stories, they're tough to figure out, right? Because, you know, you often don't want to be told, uh, people don't want you to be told what's going on with them. So, as I try to fulfill my mandate of uh, speaking about the, the broader history of the, of the UFO crash phenomenon, I'm going to try, and, and that's try, not absolutely guarantee that I'm going to do this, but try to um, actually keep a consistent point going throughout, uh, throughout the presentation. And uh, that is this, that when we look at the prominence and less prominent UFO crash stories of not just the post-1947 world, but in some cases going all the way back to, uh, to the 1800s, what we see is that, is that they've contributed significant aspects to the, the overall lore and mythology, and I mean mythology in sort of an anthropological sense of foundational story, rather than the sort of popular sense of a myth is something that didn't happen, but to the mythology, the, the overall sort of origin story of, uh, of the UFO phenomenon in general. There, there are little, little aspects of these stories that keep showing up and, and getting repeated, and um, it's an interesting exercise not only looking at the history of, of strange events that have happened, but how, um, how folkloric stories can, uh, can develop over time. The other sort of thing that I hope you gain by the, uh, by the end of this talk is that within the, uh, the broad universe of UFO crashes, the Shag Harbor case that we're, uh, we're hearing all about this weekend is really, really good. It's an interesting story, and um, when you hear the kinds of evidence and I'm using evidence loosely, associated with some UFO crashes, I hope it gives you a new appreciation for just the wealth of, of witnesses and documentation that go along with the Shag Harbor case, because it really is, uh, it really is incredible. Um, a little bit about me. Uh, I teach history, as, uh, as Noah said, at Mott Community College in Flint, Michigan. Um, I've written several books on, uh, on paranormal and UFO matters, including um, sort of my my book that I love the most, uh, Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist, which is sort of a history of flying saucer contactees and, uh, and contactee accounts. And uh, also um, written some on conspiracy theory and conspiracy culture, and uh, also a book called The Chaos Conundrum, which is a collection of essays about ghosts, hauntings, UFOs, strange stuff. And um, courtesy of my, uh, my actually Nova Scotia publisher, uh, Starhawk Publishing, I have a copy of the book, and at some point I'm going to slip some sort of trivia question in here, and, and, and one of you will get a chance to, uh, to win this book. Or, or actually, what it is, I will force one of you to take this book away from me. <laughs> so, um, here, here, and uh, if you, uh, unless you behave, I will autograph it for you and thus devalue it further, right? Um, 
No, don't sign it. Jeez. Um, so that's, uh, that's uh, what's going on there. So I teach history. I, uh, I've written about UFO contact and, and conspiracy theory. And if you combine history, conspiracy theory, and actual conspiracies and cover-ups, um, along with flying saucers, you pretty much have the parameters for the UFO crash phenomenon. That, that's sort of, there's sort of this nexus point where political conspiracy and UFOs sort of merge. Um, apart from paranormal topics, my field of study is, is more generally post-war American history, particularly uh, Cold War politics and mil military policy, which of course, again, is right in the orbit of most of this UFO crash, um, crash phenomenon. Um, and uh, and what, I, what I will tell you is, if you are a skeptical type of person, you're going to think I'm a UFO nut. If you're a believer type of person, you're going to think I'm some kind of skeptic. So it's, it's right in that, that nice middle area where I, where I like to be, where, where pretty much everybody thinks I'm wrong. So I'm, I'm okay with that. So quickly, as, as we begin, we need, to, um, we need to define some terms. Because we might think we know, oh, UFO crashes, oh, I know what that is. Well, there's some unpack. I sound like a teacher. We need to unpack these terms a little bit. And uh, the first term to unpack is, uh, is UFO. Um, first off, I think it's important to keep the unidentified part of unidentified flying object in mind. Um, that doesn't, unidentified doesn't mean not something weird and not something worth looking into. It just means we, doesn't, we don't know. Unidentified, as well, does not mean it's alien. It means unidentified. So that's something to, um, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, so as tempting as it may be to swing to one of two extremes, to, uh, to hang our hats on, uh, on aliens or to uh, hang our hats on know, weather balloons or something like that, um, it's important to, to realize for most of these cases there, is still, there are still unsolved aspects to them, and, and aspects that, that might, uh, might not be solved within, uh, within our lifetimes. Um, if, uh, if any of you were here last night and heard, uh, and heard Chris speak last night to, uh, to open the weekend, he uh, talked about the importance of keeping an open mind when looking at cases like this. And, um, and, and I, I sort of just like realized that, you know, as... as unfun as it may be sometimes, keeping an open mind also means being open to the possibility that it's a weather balloon or a hoax or a hubcap or something. So something to keep in mind. And if you believe that there's an evil corporate cover-up to uh, affect our thinking here on earth, I will tell you that I, as I was typing out this talk during a really boring meeting a couple weeks ago on my iPad, I typed unidentified, and it kept correcting it to unidentifiable. So clearly Apple is trying to convince us that we will never solve the mystery. So I, uh, I, Tim Cook is uh, a lizard person, maybe. Uh, he, he might be. Uh, so keep in mind, open mind, but, uh, but have fun. Now, crash is, uh, is a little more straightforward. Um, my dictionary defined crash as a violent collision with another object. And, and for our purposes, that object is usually the ground that things are crashing into. Since we have limited time, and since I was asked to talk about UFO crashes, I, uh, I, nearly, I, I want to confine myself to incidents involving objects from the sky unintentionally striking the surface of the Earth. So controlled, intentional landings are outside 
of our purpose today. So if, um, if, if so nobody asked me why I'm not talking about Rendlesham, that thing landed. So landings are not crashes, and crashes are not landings, and, um, and so that's, that's a separate talk. There's, there's UFO landings in history. It's a talk that's three times as long because there's been more of those. Um, Finally, um, I will not be talking about Shag Harbor because I'm bookended by speakers who have written books on Shag Harbor. So there's really, you know, not much point to me saying, and there's this case called Shag Harbor, and I don't know if you've heard of it, but it took place in Canada. Um, so there won't, be, uh, there won't be any Shag Harbor. Don't worry, I will talk about Roswell a bit, um, even though Roswell is the... Um, it is the analogy that uh, I don't really have because I just forgot what analogy I was going to use for what Roswell is. But Roswell is, oh, Roswell's the, somebody in a, at a concert yelling, play Freebird, no matter who the band is. So Roswell is just this sort of thing that always pops up and uh, to the point that we think we know all about it. And I'm going to talk about a few of the reasons why, some of the ideas about what might have been behind Roswell that you may not have heard of because they're, they're very strange and, and probably less plausible sometimes than, than an alien craft crashing. So UFO crashes have, um, have some similarities, often. Um, similarities, <laughs> similarities beyond the fact that there was something in the sky that all of a sudden wasn't. There are some things that, that they have in common, and that could be due to a couple of things. It could be because these crashes are a consistent pattern of events that happen in the same way, or it could be that after so many incidents of hearing about saucer crashes, people tend to confuse the details. And so you always have this or that involved with them. One similarity is uh, the involvement of military or other government authorities at some point uh, beyond local law enforcement, local emergency services. Sometimes this involvement is, is sort of incidental and due to the proximity of, uh, of a military installation. <clears throat> Sometimes on the other hand, authorities travel quite a ways um, for no reason other than to investigate whatever it was that crashed. And those are the ones that sort of stand out. Um, if there's a, a military post five miles from where something happened, of course you're going to have some involvement. If they're traveling to, um, to something several, several states or provinces over, or it's the U.S. Navy wandering up to some island in Canadian waters, you know, that, that sort of raises some some, I don't know if they're red flags, but it sort of raises, uh, raises our attention. Um, one of the familiar, familiar things that go along with this idea of military or intelligence agency involvement is that uh, we have lots of reports of the object, uh, debris, body, other, uh, other ephemera, from the site being confiscated and hidden away in some Raiders of the Lost Ark-style vault. It's, it's, uh, it's secrets. Uh, forever hidden from the public. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a U.S. naval officer just saying, hey, why don't you just give that artifact to us? You know, we'll, we'll take care of it. You know, something like that. So that's another thing that, that tends to happen. Another commonality is the difficulty, but not impossibility, difficulty. I'm not saying it's, it's impossible, but it's, it's difficult, of often finding solid, credible witnesses that, one, want to share their stories, and two, want to share their stories with their actual real name attached to it. And three, if they do those two things, share stories that agree with other people who have agreed to share their stories. 
So in a lot of cases, we have multiple accounts that don't always line up. So that's uh, something that's often in common with some of these, uh, some of these cases. Like I said, it's, it's not impossible, but the further away in time we get from the original events, the more difficult things become, which is the case with all historical events. Um, a final commonality, and one that is uh, simultaneously frustrating and fascinating, is the, uh, the variety of conclusions and meanings that different people, from on-the-ground researchers to people who just read a book about UFO crashes, that these people draw from these crash stories. Since in most cases there's no consensus on what crashed, there is no consensus on what the impact and significance of the crash is. You are going to draw a very different conclusion about the meaning of the event if it's a weather balloon than you would if you have been convinced that it is an extraterrestrial craft. You are going to come away with a different sense of what the meaning of that event is for, for humanity, for the area, for your nation, for you, um, for you personally. So that's sort of, that's sort of the ground rules where um, we're looking at. So things that fall out of the sky, supposedly unintentionally, um, and there's some common threads that, uh, that sort of connect these things together. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go sort of in chronological order from basically the, uh, the 1890s to, I think my, the last one I talk about is in, is in the mid-1960s, sort of, sort of a couple years before the Shag Harbor incident took place. And we're going to, uh, to, to look at some of these events and, and tell some of these stories. And I'll sort of signpost it a little bit as we go, but keep your ears open for things that are incredibly similar that seem almost too similar between some of these cases and some reports. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. As I, was, as I was doing the work on putting this talk together, uh, there, there's some aspects that I, I saw pop up in a couple of different cases that I was like, why would that be similar? That's an odd detail to be almost word for word exact between crash A and crash B. So we're going to start off way back in time um, in, uh, in the 19th century because uh, weird things in the sky did not just start appearing in 1947, despite what you may see on television. 1947 was an important year, but not, uh, not the first year. Uh, last night, uh, Chris talked about how to picture some Foo Fighters, the, the glowing things around planes from World War II. And there, there are other, um, other things that have happened earlier. Throughout human history, you can say, um, interpretations of, uh, of biblical stories and stories from ancient India, for example, that, that people have connected to what today we might call UFOs or flying saucers. This is, has been part of the human experience. Um, there are several cases where there have been things falling out of the sky and, and, and there have been contact with people and usually they're people, um, human-y type things, uh, people within them. If you're interested in pre-modern era UFO sightings and related events, a really good resource is uh, called Wonders in the Sky, uh, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times, which was uh, written, written compiled, really. It's sort of a chronology of, uh, of events by uh, Jacques Vallée and uh, Chris Aubeck, and it's, uh, it was published a few years ago. Anybody read that one, Wonders in the Sky? It, it's, it's a good one. Um, it's, uh, 
it gets a little tedious because it's just story, 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 story. But it's, it's good. Um, one of the types of pre-modern sightings, these things come in waves. You've heard of UFO waves, right? 1952, big wave of UFOs. 1947, sightings all over the place. In the 60s, there's a wave of sightings at various times in the 60s. 1897, April of 1897, was a period in, um, in the United States, at least, that there was a, uh, a sort of spate of sightings of what became called mystery airships. Uh, they weren't saucer-shaped, um, but they didn't really look like any sort of airship that people were working on at the time. They were often very strange. The descriptions describe rotating propellers and flapping wings, and they sort of look like old-timey silent films of pre-Wright Brothers' attempts at flight. But these things were actually flying, and in some cases, crashing. Um, I think it's good to look at a couple of these things, not, I mean, I, uh, if I could go on for an hour about just mystery airships, that would be, that would be horrible. That would be a pretty brutal talk, actually, but um, nobody, nobody wants that. Nobody has ever been asked to speak for an hour on mystery airships. It just doesn't happen, um, because as, as you'll see, these stories, are, it's, I love this, um, it's, it's horrible. As, as I was writing this, I was like, yeah, UFO crashes, this is awesome, and um, this, this first story, um, we get to this first story I'm going to tell you, and I'm like, I just want to write a book about this story that was clearly made up, but is so awesome. It's just great. Happened in 1897, April 1897, in a town called Lanark, uh, Lanark Illinois. Lanark, Illinois is a town that nobody has heard of because it's very tiny. It is in the, I, I should have brought a map. I, I realize that not everybody, even in the United States, has a good mental image of the geography of Illinois. I, I really should have thought I do, but you know, that's sort of my thing. Um, Lanark is a tiny town in the northwest corner of Illinois on the, uh, sort of bordering the Ohio River River. Yeah, my knowledge of the geography of Illinois is outstanding. Bordering the Mississippi River, different river, um, right sort of across the river from, uh, from Iowa. And Lanark in 1897 had the greatest population it would ever have. This is sort of the high water mark of Lanark, Illinois, at about 1,300 people. So not, uh, not, a, huge, not a huge place. On April 9th, a craft that the local newspaper uh, described as, uh, as an airship, that's the, the term it used, um, some exploded. Something exploded in the sky, and there was a ruby-colored glow in the sky, and numerous people saw it, and it crashed. And a group of men, it was, um, was still, still kind of cold, and um, not quite wintry, but northern Illinois, winter lasts quite a long time. There was snow on the ground in April, which is not unheard of. Group of men from, uh, from the local area get together to go find this thing that had crashed. And supposedly, according to the news reports, although we'll get to why the news reports might not be the most reliable thing ever here, um, it crashed on a farm owned by a, uh, a German, uh, German farmer named Johann Fliegeltaub, which is a great name, Johann Fliegeltaub. And it killed two of the three supposed occupants in the craft. The third member of the crew, the, who was described as the pilot, was, uh, was slightly injured. And according to the news reports, 
the day after the crash, uh, Farmer Johan was, uh, was, was allegedly charging the townsfolk a dollar apiece to come see the, the crashed vehicle. Um, as we'll see, this might not be the most reliable report. Um, dollar apiece to see the wreckage, and the newspaper, the one newspaper in the county, arrived on the scene. The reporter was, he called himself General, I don't know if he was a general, F.A. Kerr, and he was writing for the Mount Carroll Daily Democrat, and he, uh, he dis- if, you, if you go on the internet to like newspapers.com, you can pay money, which I don't like to do, but you can pay money to actually look up the, in the archives, you can find the news reports for yourself. Um, F.A. Kerr, maybe a general, um, he arrived on the scene, and he said he was so disturbed in the article that he swallowed two cocaine tablets in order to steady his nerves. Now, I'm, I'm not au fait with the ins and outs of cocaine. I don't think cocaine has ever steadied anybody's nerves. I, I'm just, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, he steadied himself with, uh, with, uh, with some, some cocaine, and... And he talked about, he met the pilot. And this is what he wrote. I found the unknown wanderer lying on a lounge, and I approached and examined him closely. He was about medium height and of athletic build, with long curled hair, dark brown, and an extremely handsome face. He wore a white tunic reaching to his knees, and on his feet were sandals strapped with tinfoil. Tinfoil. The tunic was embroidered with a coat of arms, a shield with a chain of sausages and a ham sandwich on it. A a few minutes after I entered the room, he awoke and sat, sat up. Immediately, everybody fled except myself. After looking around for a minute, he said in a language that I knew at once to be Volapük, and I'll explain that in a second. Where am I? I answered, near Lanark, on Earth. And he said he was glad to be there and asked how it happened. He explained the circum- I explained the circumstances to him, and we had a long conversation. He told me that he and his companions were an exploring party from Mars who had been flying over this country for some weeks, explaining the other sightings of aircraft that had happened. Oh, they probably saw us. We were, we've been around. Um, around midnight, he expressed a desire to see his wrecked machine, and I went with him to visit it. When he saw a hole in the window with his fingers, he bent the torn metal and brought a pot of pasty-looking stuff, which he spread over the hole was, and then he ran hastily to the barn, picked up the bodies of his compatriots, and carried them to his ship. Stepping inside, he pulled a lever which set the propellers whirring, and the machine dragged itself from the ground. The crowd was awestruck by the proceedings. I myself, to whom nothing is strange, returned to Lanark, and securing a room at the hotel, sat up all night smoking opium and eating hashish and in, to get in condition to write the story. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be one of these knee-jerk skeptic types. I want to believe the tunic with the crest with the ham sandwich. I want a tunic with a crest with a ham sandwich. I would wear that every day. Um, but it doesn't strike me as the most credible report. There were reports the next day and um, that, that sort of 
reca- this, the one that, that you just heard was sort of the second day. The first day was something blew up and it crashed. Um, and then the third day, there was a note from the editor explaining that the whole thing had been made up. And it was sort of never spoken of again until I saw it in a maz- magazine article about 10 years ago. Um, Volapük, the language uh, that, uh, that the aliens spoke, is real. Volapük is a constructed language like Esperanto that was invented in the 19th century by a German priest who had a dream in which God told him to create a new language. So that's, that's a real, th- or real thing. And uh, actually, Volapük, the language itself, comes up in a couple of these um, these crashed airship stories. There's, um, and and it, it, I think the reason it comes up is because the Lanark one hit first and then other Volapük stories appear. And you have reports of people going to crashed airships making sure they had a Volapük to English dictionary with them. Because apparently the people who flew here from Mars in machines that had propellers... Anybody know why propellers might not get you from here to Mars? Yeah. Um... The propellers were for show to make the humans feel at home, probably. Um, so, I love the Lanark, Illinois story, and uh, I, I love it. Um, I don't think there's enough there for a book, but man, I, I might try. A much more well-known 19th century event happened, happened about a week later. You may have heard of this. This was in uh, Aurora, Texas little town of Aurora, Texas. And there's a, a brief newspaper account by a man named S.E. Hayden. And it was for the Dallas Morning News. So it wasn't a local, um, a local sort, of, sort of county-wide newspaper. The, the Dallas Morning News was one of the major papers in Dallas. It still is one of the major papers in Dallas. And uh, the, the story was filed on April 17th. And it said that at 6 o'clock in the morning... On April 17th, the early risers of Aurora were astonished by the sudden appearance of the airship, which has been sailing throughout the country. So again, kind of like some of the other, uh, like sort of the aftermath of the the Lanark thing and and the comments in the Lanark story about how people, you may have seen us flying over your country. A lot of these stories about these mystery airships sort of of draw the conclusion that that this, this is one ship that everybody seems to be seeing in the country. So um, that's an interesting connection. Um, It slowed down and gradually uh, settled toward the earth um, and then uh, then collided supposedly with a windmill. It might not have been a windmill. um, And uh, went to pieces with a terrific explosion scattering debris over several acres of ground and destroying the flower garden of the owner of the house. The pilot uh, was the only one on board. His remains were badly disfigured, but, quote, enough of the original has been picked up to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. Mr. T.J. Weems, the United States Signal Service officer and an authority on astronomy, gives it as his opinion that he was a native of the planet Mars. Uh, Papers found on the person are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered. Uh, the ship was too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or mode of power. It was built of an unknown metal resembling somewhat a mixture of aluminum and silver. The town people looked at it, gathered specimens, and uh, they gave him a funeral and supposedly buried him the next day. And there the story ends for decades. It was in this newspaper, and then it was not really talked about. It doesn't show up in... Um, in things, in books for a while. In the 1960s, 
uh, attention stirred up because um, people found the, uh, found the article and, and started looking into it. And many of these cases, Roswell, for example, um, Shag Harbor for another, the incident takes place, and then decades later, you have people looking into it with more detail. It, it happens, it's in the news, and then it sort of fades away. And then later, it's revisited. And there, were, there were sort of two waves of, uh, of Aurora investigation. And um, the investigations in the 1960s were highly critical of, um, of, uh, of, of what had gone on. Uh, the story said the, the craft crashed into a windmill. They looked at records. They talked to people in the area. There was never a windmill for it to crash into at that place. So there's, there's little bits that are falling apart. People who were alive at the time and, and would have been aware of such an event going on um, said that there was nothing like that. That didn't actually happen. Um, signal officer T.J. Weems did not exist. He was probably named after Jeff Weems, the village blacksmith. Uh, so we did have that, that little bit of, oh, there's an army man there to explain the crashed object. But he, he wasn't really an army man. And so things died down. He said, there's no mysterious metals. There's, there's nothing there. And then a decade later in the 1970s, they come back to it again. Some investigators come back to it again. And an uh, investigator named Hayden Hughes looks at it. And mysteriously, now in the 70s, there were eyewitnesses that apparently didn't speak up in the, 19, in, in the earlier investigation. A woman named Mary Evans said, quote, the pilot was torn up and killed in the crash. The men of the town gathered his remains and said he was a small man and buried him that same day in Aurora Cemetery. A guy named G.C. Curley said, quote, my friend said there was a big crowd of sightseers who were picking up pieces of the exploded airship, but no one could identify the metal it was made of. We didn't have metal like that in America at the time, and they said it was difficult to describe the pilot. They saw only a torn up body. So we've gone from the story being forgotten to the story being investigated and dismissed to the story being investigated with witnesses who have shown up. And with some people saying, well, there are some bits of metal, and I have them. And so some of the metal is turned over. And then later in the 70s, there was another investigation that sort of took apart most of the story that had been positive about Aurora. Um, uh, Curly, the, uh, the, Curly, I, one of the Stooges, uh, Curly, the, the witness who said it was a strange piece of metal nobody could identify, his name wasn't actually his name that he said it was, and records show he wasn't actually living even in Texas at the time. He said he witnessed all this going on. Mary Evans um, sort of issued a, a kind of harsh renunciation of how she was quoted, and she said, I was, what I was doing is I was telling them what the newspaper said happened. None of that actually happened. She says, you took what I said completely out of context. Um, while there was some metal found, uh, it tended, it didn't seem abnormal. It was, it was not really strange at all. Uh, there was some metal that some people claim didn't act as, as it should. Metal with a high iron content was exhibiting no magnetic properties, for example. But there was a lot of, a lot of difference of opinion even between UFO organizations. Um, 
Uh, APRO, uh, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, Coral Lorenzen, uh, Chris mentioned Coral Lorenzen a bit earlier, um, her group investigated it and, uh, and said that, that this, is, this is normal. This is normal metal. There's nothing going on here. But a brand new organization called MUFON that had started up said, you know what, there's something here. And we're going to, uh, we're going to look into this. We think there's enough information to ask the, uh, the, the town officials to dig up the body, because there had been a, a tombstone supposedly placed where the spaceman's body was. And so the MUFON people said, well, let's exhume the body. Let's get an order to exhume the body. And the town said, no. And the MUFON investigators said, well, well, why not? And they said, because we don't even know who put that headstone there, and we're pretty sure it's a hoax. We're not, and even if there is a, no, basically go away. Don't dig up our graveyard. The MUFON investigators were, um, were, were, were able to, uh, to spin this in, uh, in, in various ways. Uh, but um, they, they, sort of, they sort of, the investigators, I, I read the report, and they, they played it both ways. They said, well, if they would have let us dig up the body, it's proof that there, that there was, then we could prove there was something there. Since they didn't let us dig up the body, it's proof they're trying to cover up there was a body there. Of course, if they would have let us dig up the body and there wasn't a body there, they might not let us dig up the body because they don't want us to find out that there's a hoax. And so no matter what the townspeople said about it's okay to dig up the body, MUFON had, had a way to sort of say, well, any way you crack it, it proves that we did this investigation well, which is a good way to do things. In the end, not really any solid evidence, solid evidence, strange little bits, of, uh, of evidence-shaped things, but um, no, not solid enough evidence. But there's still people pursuing it. It's, it's uh, on the sign there, uh, the picture, there's the, that's the Aurora Cemetery, and the historical marker does mention the newspaper reports. It doesn't take a position on whether the newspaper reports are true, but it says that, uh, that this did happen. The most, even among many UFO researchers, one of the most accepted explanations of what happened is that um, with the airship craze in the spring of 1897, uh, this was a way to get some attention to Aurora, which by 1897 was a town that was dying. Um, I don't know how it is, it's probably the same in any place on Earth, but a town is planted in a place because at some point there are expectations that economically this town will succeed. And in the late 1800s, that success depended on access to railroad lines. And Aurora believed it was going to get a rail line, it was going to be a stop on one of the major rail lines. And they, the rail company changed that. And so the railroad bypassed it, and later you have this, well, what can we do to get people's attention? Now, I'm not sure pretending to have a dead spaceman is an economic Thing. Um, I'm not sure you could go to the town fathers and say, look, I know the railroad didn't come here, and I know everybody's moving out. I got an idea. Let's tell people that there's a spaceman and that he's dead. I don't think that's great. On the other hand, a hundred years and a couple months after this happened in Aurora, you had the 50th anniversary of Roswell. And a town that by the 90s really had nothing going on, the military had moved out, there wasn't a lot of industry there. That town saw a massive economic boost from the 50th anniversary of Roswell and the subsequent festivals there. So maybe Aurora was just ahead of its time. 
in the, the field of UFO tourism? No. Maybe. I, I don't know. Maybe. Um, moving into the 20th century. Um, Maury Island. In uh, Maury Island in Washington. Who, um, here's, the trivia, here's the trivia question. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. It, it's an easy one. This is an easy one for, for this crowd. I, I can tell from looking, you guys are going to know this one. Uh, the, the question is, who I see raised their hand first, who, who um, is forced to take the book. June 24th, 1947. Thank you. You win the book. Come see me afterwards. Um, <laughs> see, I, I knew I, I should have I done something. Uh, I, I should have said, what was the name of the fake army officer in Aurora, in a, in Aurora Texas, who um, then, then I couldn't get rid of my book. Um, so a few days before, before Kenneth Arnold saw six objects shaped uh, like chevrons, in his words, skipping like saucers through the air, um, an incident occurred in Washington State that would be one of the most convoluted uh, UFO stories ever. Um, June 21st, 1947, near Maury Island, which is in Puget Sound on, uh, on, in Washington State, there was a harbor patrolman named Harold Dahl, D-A-H-L. And um, when I say harbor patrolman, a lot of times that sounds a lot fancier than what it really was. Um, this was not a harbor patrol sort of guiding ships and making sure. This was, there were logs that tended to roam around the harbor, and the job was to push the logs out of the way with, out of the way with a big pole. That was sort of what they did on this harbor patrol. Harold, Harold Dahl, his son Charles, the rest of their crew, are on board a patrol craft, and they see six donut-shaped objects, kind of like that. Close enough to a saucer, right? Uh, donut-shaped objects. There were, there were six of them. Five of them were sort of circling around one in the middle that seemed to have a hard time staying, uh, staying aloft. So you have, you have five sort of, sort of um, donuts spinning around a central donut that looks like it's in a bit of trouble. It seemed to be damaged. It passes over the patrol boat, the story goes, and ejected stuff. Some kind of metal. It's usually described as slag of some kind. Um, and there was actually two different substances. The first was a thin, white, newspaper-like metal, um, which I assume means sort of thin and flexible. I, I don't know what newspaper-like metal might be. Sort of thin, foily sort of things. And another was, uh, was black and similar to lava rock. In fact, here's a spoiler. It was probably lava rock. Um, but the thing is, it comes down, it hits Dahl's son on the arm, injures his arm. Another piece hits and kills their dog, who was on the boat with him. Of course, the problem is, there's another story later on that, well, no, the thing crashed, and the weird materials we found were part of the crash site. So, did it crash? Did it eject metal? It depends on who you ask on which day, which is one of the problems with some of these crashed saucer stories. The story changes. Um, and it's hard to get to what really happened. So the story gets confusing because it was told multiple times and multiple people. And Kenneth Arnold, who had seen these saucers after it happens, um, Ray Palmer of uh, Amazing Stories magazine, and we'll hear more about Amazing Stories magazine in a minute, 
sent Kenneth Arnold, who at that time was the flying saucer expert in America, because he's, he's the flying saucer guy, sends him to Washington State to figure out what's going on with this. And Dahl tells Arnold that um, he, he didn't report the incident to anybody when it happened. He, he didn't talk to anybody. He didn't tell the story. But nevertheless, the next day, he says he didn't tell anybody, he says some strangers dressed in dark clothes arrived and warned him not to tell anybody about what he had seen. Does that type of thing sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, Men in Black. If you want to sort of pinpoint the beginning of the Men in Black story, this is a good, uh, the modern post-47 Men in Black story. This is a good place to, um, this is a good place to do that. Dahl didn't think much of it, um, because the Men in Black weren't actually a thing. Nobody had heard of the term Men in Black yet. But he was wondering how these men knew that he had seen this thing, and why he was being warned not to talk about it. Um, He's like, eh, I don't know, maybe one of the other guys on the boat talked, right? That's actually a pretty reasonable explanation. Dahl didn't tell anybody, but there were other people on, on, the, on the patrol boat. But then he said that the logbook in which he'd recorded the incident, that those pages had gone missing, that the logbook had been, had been taken. More than that, and this is weird, but it's in the FBI file about this incident. And so it's one of those things that, the strangest parts of this are not, hey, there was a thing in the air. It's all the people around it afterward. His 15-year-old son was treated for his injury, although researchers have not been able to find any actual medical records of where he went or what the uh, injury was. His son disappeared and was found a couple days later in, the FBI agents weren't sure, either Idaho, I think it was Idaho or Wyoming, working in a restaurant with no idea of how he got there. It's just, that's strange. Um, Dahl talked to his supervisor, a guy named Fred Chrisman, and uh, told him about it, and, uh, and eventually Arnold showed up, and when Arnold met with Dahl and Chrisman, Chrisman told the whole story, did most of the talking, which Arnold thought was really strange because Chrisman hadn't been there. Dahl was the actual witness. Dahl kept quiet, Chrisman told the story. Arnold examined the material um, from the incident and thought it was the, the, the lightweight stuff was aluminum and the heavy black stuff was lava rock. That was, I mean, he's, he's a pilot, he was familiar, he says, this is aircraft-grade aluminum. That's, that's what this is. Um, but Dahl claimed he had taken some pictures and he was going to get them to Arnold eventually. And Arnold thought, well, there's stuff did fall out of something. There's this weird aluminum slag. He says he has pictures. I don't know what to do with this. I'm going to call the Air Force. And so he called up the Air Force officer who he had talked to about his flying saucer encounter uh, back, in, uh, back earlier. And um, July 31st, 47, he calls uh, Air Force Lieutenant Frank Brown. And uh, Brown, along with a Captain William Davison, show up from California and their report that they uh, that they they sort of you know telegraphed back to uh, back to the Air Force was that Dahl and Chrisman had made up the story, and that the, uh, the 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 material was was normal industrial slag. But they wanted to take a sample of it back to the Air Force just so they had something on record. 
And then another one of those weird things happens that makes this story a perennial favorite, along with the proto-men in black showing up, along with Dahl's son winding up with short-term amnesia in, in some diner somewhere. The plane that Brown and um, Davidson fly back to uh, California on, one of the engines blows while it's in the air, and the crew flying it is able to parachute out, but Brown and Davison are killed in the crash. So if you have a conspiratorial mindset, you've got the guys who investigated it, who have supposedly some material evidence from the incident, die before they can make their final report. The Air Force ruled there was no sabotage. Um, and, you know, planes crash. But it's one of those things where as the story develops, you know, this is, this is weird. There, there's other things that make Maury Island, um, the, the crash, significant in the broader history of the subject. First is, is you know, the men in black, and then we have the, the, the plane crashing. But Fred Chrisman, Fred Chrisman is a strange... How many of you have heard of Fred Chrisman? couple of you. Fred Christman is an interesting guy. Um, he, in the 1970s, um, John Keel, a paranormal writer and researcher, and, and others, but, but Keel is the one who, who wrote the most about this, he'd done some research back into some earlier issues of um, Ray Palmer's Amazing Stories magazine. And uh, have any of you heard of a man named Richard Shaver? Yeah. Richard Shaver was a writer in the, in the, in the 40s who, who wrote these stories that he claimed were true for amazing stories, and they were incredibly popular, about how the earth was hollow and inhabited by a, a good race of beings called the Tiros and a bad, mischievous, evil race called the Deros. And these were published in a science fiction magazine, but Shaver claimed they were real. Keel looked back in some issues from 1946 of Amazing Stories, and he finds a letter, which he believes is from, it's from an F.L. Chrisman, Fred Lee Chrisman, a letter to Amazing Stories where Chrisman claims these stories about the hollow earth are real. Chrisman claims that during the war, he was on an island in the Pacific, and that he had entered a cave, and the cave went really deep, and he had encountered these beings, and he had been zapped by one of their heat rays, and he'd been injured, and he had to fight his way out of the Dero cave with a machine gun. So before Maury Island even happened, one of the guys who would become involved with this story was already writing to amazing stories with strange tales of the hollow earth. Later, in the 1970s, Charles Dahl would resurface talking to some people and say, you know what, you want to hear something strange? You know that TV show, The Invaders, with Roy Thinnes? Anybody remember The Invaders with Roy Thinnes? He says, those stories are Fred Christman's stories. He told me those things happened to him. That show is like a real account of his life. Which is just strange. Um... And it gets weirder with Fred Christman. Back in the 60s, when, um, when Christman was, was starting off, sort of going from being a Harbor Patrol boss to being a radio talk show host in, uh, in Washington, <laughs> being a radio talk show host in Washington, um, Jim Garrison, 
who prosecuted Clay Shaw in relation to the Kennedy assassination, um, actually implicated Chrisman as one of the three hobos who were involved possibly via the CIA with the Kennedy assassination. So with this one man, Fred Chrisman, we have a sci-fi story about underground people possibly claiming to be real, a TV show about aliens that he claims, that people claim is based on his life. He shows up at the first evidence of the men in black and something crashing from a modern saucer, and he might have worked for the CIA and been involved in the Kennedy assassination. It is... It is an amazing, an amazing rabbit hole. And it became famous for all, well, UFO famous, which is different from real famous, but UFO famous for all those reasons. If this is a rabbit hole that you have decided you have way too much time on your hands and you want to look into, uh, Ken Thomas has written a book called JFK and UFO that goes into the Maury Island case and all the things surrounding it in um, horrifyingly exhaustive detail. So, some more cases. Roswell, just a little bit about Roswell. Not a lot about Roswell. Um, Roswell, Chris mentioned that, that in, I, I love how he says this, in 1967 in Canada, there was no Roswell. That is, that is a great way to sort of explain the fact that after the initial news reports about uh, the um, Roswell Army Air Force captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region, and then the denial of the story later. Oh, weather balloon. Um, it sort of goes away. And there's, a, there's a couple reasons it goes away. One is, one was that, that the general public in the 1940s and 50s, the general public had a, had a in, overall sense that eh, the government's probably not lying to us. As opposed to more recent decades where, where it's impossible to fathom the government not lying to us. It, it's, it's weird, actually. It, a little aside, um, when, I, when I talk about uh, things like Watergate and, and Vietnam and, and various CIA things to my students, um, these, these students are, I think the, the oldest among them is a little older than, than I am, so you know, not, you know, not, not too old, um, but, and, and, and most, of them, most of them very young. Uh, they, they have trouble believing that there was a time when not just in the United States, but in, in the West in general, that there was, that there was a time when, when people pretty much trusted the government and, and believed it was working in their best interest. And, and that, you know, there's a time when oh, well, the Air Force said it was a weather balloon. Eh, there's no story here. Let's move on. Um, it goes away. There's little mentions of it. There's mentions that something crashed in the, uh, the Air Force then said it didn't. But in, uh, in 1980, uh, the Roswell incident by Charles Berlitz and uh, William Moore was published. And Stanton Friedman, although he wasn't one of the authors listed, did a lot of the actual research on the case for that book. He writes his own book, Crash at Corona, a bit later. And the Roswell story emerges right at the same time that in, uh, in the United States and the West in general, there is an increasing distrust of government. There have been cover-ups that have been proved and demonstrated. And so why wouldn't there have been a cover-up like this? So Roswell's popularity develops at the same time as uh, more political forms of paranoia and conspiracy theory are, theory are growing as well. So Roswell sort of re-emerged at the right place at the right time. And more witnesses started to come out. People who said, I was there. There was, there was a craft. There were bodies. Here's some metal we can't identify. There were markings. 
Little bodies, markings, materials we can't identify. These things, as, as you know now, these things didn't start with Roswell, did they? You see these things in Aurora. You see these things at, uh, at Maury Island. Um, so it's not surprising that in this conspiratorial period of the 80s and 90s, when um, we're, we're getting shows like The X-Files and the, the almost unknown and forgotten Dark Skies. Anybody remember Dark Skies? Did that make it up here? Yeah, it was... It was terrible. It was, it was, it was bad television, but I, I have a soft spot, uh, soft spot for it. Um, as we get into the 80s and 90s, there's almost a, a sense that if the Air Force says it was a weather balloon, that is proof it is not a weather balloon. Because if the Air Force or the CIA or, or anybody says it, it can't be true. Because why would they tell us the truth? They're covering something up. And the, and, and the thing is... Yeah, they, they probably were. The question we have to answer, or at least consider, is, in all of these cases, what's being covered up? Is it an alien crash, or is it something else? But there's almost no doubt, at least in my mind, that yeah, yeah, people have been lied to for a very long time about these things. And one of the effects of the lies, and this is a, an important point to keep in mind, as if, like me, you're interested in the hobby of mistrusting everybody and everything around you and, and, and gradually going insane, is that everybody is going to lie to you, and the way they lie to you, they lie to you in such a way that the truth is then argued about by everybody who thinks they're lying, and no consensus might ever emerge. And the people telling the lies, their work is done. We tell a lie, that may be a fairly obvious lie, and then we let all of the people at the community center at the UFO festival argue about it. And deny whatever explanations they don't agree with. Because they've got this mindset that it was an alien craft, or it was a mobile balloon, or it was, um, or it was any number of things. And... The great thing about Roswell, one of, the, one of the things about Roswell, one of the things about Roswell that I like the most, and I, I do like some things about Roswell, it, it's not my favorite case, but it's a pretty good one, is that in recent years there have been some really wacky Roswell theories that have emerged. Um, Nick Redfern's book, uh, Body Snatchers in the Desert. Has anybody, who's read Body Snatchers in the Desert? Go Go do that, maybe. Um, or not. It's, uh, uh, one of our speakers tomorrow, Paul Kimball, he and I um, both agree that it's probably not right, but I think it's more entertaining than, than he does. I think. He's, he's nodding. It's like, I don't, think, I don't agree with it, but it's fun. Um, Nick Redfern argues that um, from testimony he's gotten from, from people who were there at the time, uh, it's, it's his view that the Roswell crash was actually a, um, a crash of alien, not alien beings, but possibly Japanese prisoners of war that the government was experimenting on in high atmosphere tests, and that the reason it was covered up is because it could be considered war crimes, especially since it happened two years after the war was over. Some other crashes. After Roswell, the one that sort of pops up, it's, it's, a, it's a zombie, it's a bad penny, it's whatever cliche you want, it's the Aztec case in New Mexico. And the great thing about Aztec I'll be honest. The great thing about Aztec is the book cover of Beyond the Flying Saucers because it's so lurid and pulpy. And it all starts with the man on the left, a man named Frank Scully, who was not 
a journalist, not an investigator. He was kind of a gossip and humor columnist for Variety, which was the Hollywood, uh, sort of the Hollywood newspaper at the time. And in October of 1949, he reports that he's met with a bunch of scientists who have told him about a crash, a couple of crashes, but there's one here in the States. They pulled 16 small bodies out of the wreckage, and um, those 16 bodies were, uh, were charred, dark brown, because of uh, air that came in through a hole in the windshield, the atmosphere must have darkened their skin. But the autopsies done by the Air Force, which recovered the bodies, showed they all were perfectly human but tiny and had perfect teeth. I, I don't, for when they eat us, right? Like that Twilight Zone episode. They have perfect teeth. The book comes out later, and it turns out that the man on the right, a man named Silas Newton, was the source of, uh, of, of Scully's story. Silas Newton was an oil man. He, was, uh, he had an oil company, Newton Oil. He claimed to have a device that would use magnetic waves to find oil reserves, which isn't real. Um, but he had this device. He was, Scully claimed he's a brilliant man, tops in his field. Scully claims he got the story from Dr. G, a top government scientist who had gone rogue and was investigating this saucer crash. Um, what ends up happening is there's this story about the crash saucer. There's no witnesses apart from people who won't give their real names. And a couple years after the story broke, and other UFO organizations like NICAP said there's nothing to the story, it's a hoax, Newton and, um, and Dr. G, whose real name was Leo Gebauer, were convicted of fraud for selling fake oil-detecting devices to investors. And so if you want to know why Roswell disappears, it's because Aztec was considered at the time to be such an egregious hoax and fraud that probably all the other stories about stuff crashing in New Mexico are as well. And so the flying saucer research community moves on to other things. Um, there are still people who maintain that Aztec is real, that Dr. G was not one man, but eight different government scientists. Um, there's a book published just last year by a guy named Scott Ramsey that goes into this. There were other crashes. 1965, and, uh, and this, is, um, this is sort of the one I'm going to end up with. I got the high sign from Noah back there, so I'm going to end up with this one. Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. You heard of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania? It's, uh, it's a good one. That's a picture I took. 1965, there is a streak of light from Canada going southeast across part of the Great Lakes region. It supposedly makes a course correction, crashes in the tiny town of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. Pieces of debris rained down all along this flight path. Some were discovered in Lapeer, Michigan, about 20 minutes away from where I live. Um, something crashed in the woods. Firefighters went in. State police went in. Eventually, witnesses see military officials going in. The official statement is, there is nothing in the woods. Oh, can we go back and look? No. You can't go back and look at the thing that doesn't exist. But there, were some there was a volunteer fireman who claimed later that he was actually in the woods before they cordoned it off. So he was already back there, and he saw an object that he described as an acorn-shaped object that was orange with a gold band around the base with some hieroglyphics on it. This is a model that the people of Kecksburg 
have, uh, have put up. You see that, then you go into a bar, and there's a gift shop in the bar. And, and you can buy a Pittsburgh shot glass. Um, they said there was nothing there. Um, later, witnesses saw a flatbed army truck taking off a giant object under a tarp out of the area. Uh, people were turned away, told not to go back into the woods. Um, later on, when the witnesses came forward who said they had been there in the woods, uh, there's some speculation that it might have been a Russian space probe, uh, which had uh, re-entered the atmosphere around that time, but the timing wasn't quite right. Other suggestions of space junk. NASA said categorically it was not a Russian satellite. And then in 2005 issued a statement that it absolutely was a Russian satellite. <laughs> However, you can't look into it because all the records about Kecksburg that NASA had were destroyed in the 1990s. Now, I'm just a simple country historian. I work for a community college that has saved every piece of paper since 1923. I don't know, maybe they did lose it, it happens, but I don't know. So, you've got the thing in the forest where a guy, 20 years later, says, yeah, yeah I saw that. You've got, um, you've got Roswell with stories that uh, it was a, a top-secret torture test or that uh, it was actually beings from the inner earth, which is a nice callback to the hollow earth stuff. You've got Aztec, in which the people who came up with the story were, uh, were proven fraudsters. You've got, um, you've got made-up newspaper stories and hashish-eating reporters. And then you've got Shag Harbor, which, if you didn't think it sounded like a solid, credible story before, after hearing about some of these other UFO crashes, by comparison, Good grief. You've still got witnesses alive. Alive and willing to talk about it on the record with their names. You've got government documentation. You've got the, the letters UFO attached to the government documentation. You've got US military markers on Canadian territory. You've got all sorts of stuff that there's something solid there. So there's similarities between all these cases. There's stories and trends that go from thing to thing to thing that keep things consistent, that show a developing mythology. And you've also got, in Shag Harbor, a comparison with a case that's really, really solid. And if Shag Harbor is never as well-known as Roswell, is never as well-known as Aztec, is never as well-known as Kecksburg, so be it, because it's a better story, with better evidence and better witnesses, and having been to some of these things, a better UFO festival. Honestly, there was, <laughs> folks, there was pie last night. There was pie. Come on. Um, that's all I have. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, I'll get you your book.